Let's say that you are in a situation where you have a boss who's intolerable and maybe what you'd like to do, you know, the resentment is built up over five years and you'd like to go in there and, and yell at him and tell him everything you think. And you think, well, that's the truth. It's like, well, it's actually, it's not a very sophisticated truth because you're doing a shallow and impulsive analysis of the situation. Like, it would have been the case that you've already compromised yourself in 500 ways. And, and I'll get back to the playing the game issue because you do have to discipline yourself too. And, and you have to discipline yourself to, to some degree by allowing yourself to do arbitrary things that are part of the system, right? That's a necessary part of discipline. And discriminating that from um, compliance with unethical activity mm -hmm. is very difficult. Mm -hmm. So that's a hard situation. But let's say you're 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 going to counsel someone who has an intolerable boss and they come in and they're right at the end of their tether because maybe that's why they come for counseling they say i really want to tell that son of a bitch what i think of him and you think well wait a second here okay first of all you've already eradicated from the list of reasonable possibilities that decision by failing to say small things that you could have said all the way along and it's not like you can just all of a sudden blurt all of that out now and that wipes the slate clean and that constitutes truth. It's too unsophisticated. So let's think, okay, so what is it that you want? Well, I don't want this job anymore. It's like, okay, now let, let's actually have a strategy about this then. You don't want this job anymore. Can you get another job? Well, I, I don't think so. Well, so you can't just quit. Well, no, I can't because then I don't have any money and my family depends on the job. It's like, okay, so you can't just stop this. That's not a viable solution. You go out of the frying pan into the fire or, you know, you, sac you, you substitute one set of unethical actions for another set of unethical actions that are even worse. That's not helpful. All right, so let's start thinking about what exactly it is that you want. It's like, well, maybe I want a better job I want to work for someone who's more reasonable. Okay, so what's stopping you? Well, I don't have my CV in order. My resume isn't up to date. Well, why is that? Well, I haven't done it for five years and I don't like doing it. Well, why is that? Well, because I'm kind of embarrassed about it because it has holes in it and it shows where I'm mm -hmm. lackadaisical and where I'm not prepared. It's like, okay, how many things are there like that? Well, there's a bunch of things and they're all associated with how I've procrastinated in the past. It's like, okay, what are we going to do to rectify that? So I'll say to people, why don't you update your CV? That, that's what we'll do first because if you're going to look for a different job, I'm not saying you're going to look for a different job. But if you're going to look for a different job, you're not going to unless your CV is updated. Yeah. And so why you're don't you also go, not going to unless you can get a good recommendation from this boss yeah, that's yeah, a tyrant. Yeah. And well, so that's you, right. There's, you got to play the game. There's sometimes. 10 strategic actions that you're going to have to take in order to make yourself able to move laterally or up. And the truth is, isn't going in and yelling at your boss and telling him everything you think about him. The truth is trying to figure out the very, very difficult process of how you put yourself in a better position. One of the things that's quite fun about this lecture tour is the letters that I receive or the stories that people tell me about switching jobs because they do realize that they're, and I often talk to people about consulting their resentment. Resentment's a really useful emotion, like it's really dangerous. Um, it's one of the most dangerous psychological states, I believe. But it's unbelievably useful because resentment usually only means one of two things. It either means quit whining and, and take it on because you're immature, 
or it means you're allowing yourself to be taken advantage of and you have something to say or do. And so you want to sort out the first part and find out if you're just being immature. And you can think that through and you can talk to people. Um, and, but, and then, but if it's the second, it's like, no, you've compromised yourself in a variety of ways and you have to figure out how to get out of that. And if you're resentful, that's evidence that you have in fact done that. Okay, so now that issue would be, well, how can you set your life up so that you can be without that resentment? And so that's when you start to develop a strategy for, you know, and, and it, it, there's actually an adventure in this too. I mean, I've had a number of clients who have been in jobs that they didn't like at all. And, you know, they were tyrannized by someone, for example, and they were also working below their hypothetical level. And we'd put together a plan. It's like, okay, you're going to make three times as much money in, in five years. That's the plan. But like, that's not going to be simple. So you, there's education. You got to educate yourself, maybe formally, because you've got holes. You got to fix up your resume. You've got to, you've got to overcome your fear of being interviewed. You have to start sending out like 50 resumes a week on a regular basis and be prepared for a 99% rejection rate. You, you're going to look for a different job. It's probably going to take six months to a year and almost all of that is going to be rejection. And you've got to steal yourself from, for that and prepare. And maybe this is going to be a three-year process. It's no trivial thing, but you know, it's almost inevitably, I can't remember a single example where the consequence of that very careful detailed strategic thinking wasn't a massively substantive improvement in socioeconomic positioning and a great movement towards a, an, an improving trajectory. And, and, and there's advantages even along the way because even before that happens, the fact that you're taking genuine steps to put yourself in a better situation immediately starts to reduce your resentment, even if it isn't having positive consequences to begin with. But you have to be realistic about it. It's like, look, it's going to be hard to update your CV because you're embarrassed about it, and you should be. Right? It's no wonder you're embarrassed about it. And then, well, of course you don't want to go be interviewed because you're not very good at it, and, and there's holes in your story, and, and you're and you can be made nervous easily and you're not a very good advocate for yourself. So there's a lot of improvement that needs to be done there. And, and then you have to withstand the, 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 the punishment of being constantly rejected when you apply for jobs because the baseline rejection rate, you know, for the, for the typical job applicant is like 99%. It's like the rejection rate for everything. Is this going to work? No. But if you do it a hundred times, it might work once. That's all and that's you all you need. That's exactly it. You, you, you only need that once. And so the truth there isn't to yell at your boss. The truth there is to get your life together. Yeah. Um, play the game. You got to play the game sometimes to, to get a strategic win to me. And that's and another interesting thing here is, as I say, you don't want to surround yourself with yes men when you're in a leadership position. You also don't want to be your own personal yes man that mm. just thinks you're great and agrees with everything that you're doing and and won't tell yourself the hard truth. You know, you can't lie to yourself. Everything, every little one of those things that you just listed off are the kind of things that people just lie to themselves and say, ah, you know what? Well, you don't really need that. That person didn't learn anything in that in that course why should I go to it mm. that you know it's like if you don't tell yourself the truth about your what your situation is it's gonna be problematic just like if you don't have people on your team above you or below you in the chain of command that tell you the truth that's gonna be problematic mm. as well one of the rules of thumb that I think is worth abiding by and I guess this is something that makes me somewhat conservative in some ways is that 
you should do what everyone else does unless there's a very good reason not to. And and I think that's I think that's the same idea that you're putting forward, which is that if you if you do fight back against everything, then you're just a rebel without a cause, right? And you and you discredit yourself entirely. And if you accept everything, well, then you're not even there. And so there's some judicious analysis of the situation that helps you understand when the time for action is right. And most of the time, what you're doing in life is you're doing what other people do, and that's going along with the game. That's part of being socialized, but there's going to be times when the right thing to do is to break a rule and to do it very carefully. And so, and yeah, there's a there's a there's a there's a scene. I think this is a New Testament scene, but it might be in some of the apocryphal right apocryphal writings. I don't remember. So Christ is walking down the road on the Sabbath, and there's uh, there, there's a ditch by the road, and it's very hot. And in the ditch, there's a hole, and in the hole, there's a sheep. And so the sheep is stuck in the hole, and this guy, shepherd, is trying to get the sheep out of the hole. And Christ walks by and he says, um, if you don't understand what you're doing, you're a transgressor of the law and you're cursed. But if you do understand what you're doing, then you're blessed. So it's, it's, it's a perfect example of that, eh? because it's, it's like if you're, okay, now here's your situation. You're a shepherd and you're supposed to be taking care of that sheep, right? But it's the Sabbath day, so you're not supposed to be working. Now, if you have decided, you've thought this through, you think it's the Sabbath day, this is something that everybody needs because everybody needs to take a rest, and this is a rule I shouldn't break because everybody needs to take a rest or or things degenerate. And I understand that, and I have a lot of respect for it, but I think that in this situation, it's still morally appropriate for me to break that rule in this slight way and get this poor sheep out of this hole, then well, Christ's judgment was, well, then you're exactly on the right track. But if you're doing it carelessly and stupidly, you're breaking that rule. Then you're a transgressor of the law and you're cursed. And I think that's exactly at the essence of what you're describing. It's like you play by the rules, but then there's a meta rule, which is now and then you break the rules. And you do that very, very carefully because when you break the rules, you're breaking the rules. And the rules are what keep peace. They, they're what keep peace in order. And so you break them only in the service of a higher peace and order. One way of conceptualizing yourself is that you're one speck of dust among seven billion. And when you conceptualize yourself that way, you might think, well, what difference does it make what I say or do? And that's actually quite convenient for you because if it doesn't matter what you say or do, then you don't have any responsibility and you can do whatever you want. The price you pay for that is a bit of nihilism, but if you don't have to shoulder any responsibility, that's a small price to pay. Another, that's the underground motivation for nihilism, but the other way of looking at it, and this is actually the accurate way of looking at it, is that you're in a network. You're a node in a network, and so you can do a little bit of arithmetic very rapidly and just figure out how powerful you are. You know a thousand people. You're going to know more than that over the course of your life, but let's say a thousand for the sake of argument for now. They know a thousand people. That means that you're one person away from a million people and two persons away from a billion people. And you're the center of that network. And now the way networks work is that information propagates in a network manner. So don't underestimate the power of your speech. Now, you know, Western culture is phallogocentric. Let's say it. Okay, so we'll say, yeah, that's just fine. That's exactly what it is. It's predicated on the idea of the logos, that the logos is the sacred element of Western culture. And what does that mean? It means that your capacity for speech is divine. 
It's the thing that generates order from chaos and then sometimes turns pathological order into chaos when it has to. Don't underestimate the power of truth. There's nothing more powerful. Now, in order to speak what you might regard as the truth, you have to let go of the outcome. You have to think, all right, I'm going to say what I think, stupid as I am, biased as I am, ignorant as I am. I'm going to state what I think as clearly as I can, and I'm going to live with the consequences no matter what they are. Now, the reason you think that, that's an element of faith. The idea is that nothing brings a better world into being than the stated truth. Now, you might have to pay a price for that, but that's fine. You're going to pay a price for every bloody thing you do and everything you don't do. You don't get to choose to not pay a price. You get to choose which poison you're going to take. That's it. So if you're going to stand up for something, stand up for your truth. It'll, it'll shape you because people will respond and object and tell you why you're a fool and a biased moron and why you're ignorant. And then if you listen to them, you'll be just that le much less like that the next time you say something. And if you do that for five years, you'll be so damn tough and articulate and able to communicate and withstand pressure that you won't even recognize yourself. And then you'll be a force to contend with. It's almost impossible to provide people with enough protection so that they feel safe to speak. Okay, so we'll address that directly. It is not safe to speak, and it never will be. But the, uh, the thing you've got to keep in mind is that it's even less safe not to speak, right? It's a balance of risks. It's like you want to you pay the price for being who you are and stating your mode of being in the world, or do you want to pay the price for being a bloody serf, a one that's enslaved him or herself? Well, that's a major price, man. That thing unfolds over decades, and you'll just be a miserable worm at the end of about 20 years of that, right? No self-respect, no power, no ability to voice your opinions, nothing left but resentment because everyone's against you, because of course you've never st stood up for yourself. It's like, say what you think carefully, pay attention to your words. The price is, it's a price you want to pay if you are willing to believe that truth is the cornerstone of society and in the most real sense if you're if you if you're willing to take that leap then tell the truth and see what happens and nothing better could possibly happen to you there'll be ups and downs and there'll be pushback and there'll be controversy and all of that but it doesn't matter the truth is what makes the world the truth is what redeems the world from hell and that's the truth and we saw plenty of hell over the last hundred years you know and we haven't learned a bloody thing from it it's like, wake up, tell the truth, tell the truth, or at least don't lie if that's a start. You should concentrate on who you should become, especially if you're young. And so let's say you're miserable and nihilistic and chaotic and depressed and all of that now, and you have your reasons, you know, terrible parenting, abuse, all of those things. It's like, well, you should feel good about yourself. It's like, no, no, it's, it's, not, it's not the right message, is that it's more like you should understand how much potential there is within you to set that straight. And then you should do everything you can to manifest that in the world and it will set it straight. And that's better than self-esteem. It's like you're, you're in a crooked, horrible position. Okay, fine. There's a lot of suffering and pain associated with that. Yeah, you can't just feel good about that because it's not good. But you can do something about it. You can genuinely do something about it. And I think all the evidence suggests that that's the case. Yes. So I'm telling, telling young people, look, there's... No matter how bad your situation is, I'm not going to pretend it's okay. It's not okay. It's tragic. 
tainted with malevolence. And some people really get hurt by malevolent people, like, you know, terribly hurt. Sometimes they never recover. It's really awful. But there's more to you than you think. And if you stand up and face it with, with a positive, with a, with a noble vision, with discipline and intent, you can go far farther to overcoming it than you can imagine. And that's the principle upon which you should predicate your behavior. And I think that one of the things that's really nice about being a clinical psychologist is that this isn't just guesswork. Like one of the things, we know two things in clinical psychology. One is truthful conversations redeem people. Because if you come to a clinical psychologist whose worth is salt, you have a truthful conversation. The conversation is, well, here's what's wrong with my life. And here's what caused it. You know, maybe it takes a year to have that conversation. And both of the participants are doing everything they can to lay it out properly. Here's how it might be fixed. Here's what a, a beneficial future might look like. And so it's a completely honest conversation if it's working well. And all that's happening in the conversation is that the two people involved are trying to make things better. That's the goal. Let's see if we can have a conversation that will make things better. Okay, so we know that works. It does make things better. And then another thing we know is that, well, let's say there's a bunch of things that you're afraid of that are in your way. So you have some vision about who you want to be. Maybe you have to, you know, you want to be successful in your career. So you have to learn to talk in front of a group. It's like, okay, well, you're afraid of that. It's like, no wonder you don't want to be humiliated. So, okay, so what do we do about that? Well, maybe we first get you to speak in front of one person and then three people, you know, for five minutes and then for 10 minutes, like graduated exposure to what you're afraid of. Voluntary graduated exposure to what you're afraid of is curative. And that's true. It works. The documentation is in. It's how people learn. So, so to, to, to tell people that if you confront the world forthrightly, if you speak the truth and you expose yourself courageously to those things that you're afraid of, that your life will improve and so will the life of people around you. Like, as far as I'm concerned, that's as close to undeniable fact as, we, as we've got. And it also dovetails nicely with the underlying archetypal stories, the heroic stories. It's like, go out there, find the dragon, confront it. It's a dragon, it might eat you, it's dangerous. But it's worse to cower at home and wait for it to come and devour you. Go out there, confront it, get the gold, share it with the community. It's like, yeah, it's the oldest story of mankind. Well, there isn't any difference between the fool and someone who's courageous, right, from an archetypal perspective. And, I mean, Abraham is a fool, obviously, when he starts his, his, his adventures. I mean, the story lays it out in that manner. He's far too old to be leaving home, for example. He's a late bloomer, you know, and, and then he has, he has a lot of catastrophic adventures along the way. And certainly you could imagine that had you encountered him when he first encountered the famine in the land of strangers when he first went out, that the idea that he had... Um, he had followed his misguided intuitions would have been self-evident. But in the Abrahamic stories, there is this call to get out and do. And, and that's it. And the thing is, is that, you know, one of the things I've learned to put it, to make it concretely is that, like, I've done a lot of different things in my life. And every time I did a new thing, I was a fool. I did it badly. I, I was an imposter, right? And, and, and because I, when you first start to do something, you don't know what you're doing. But that, that's okay, that's an acceptance of your vulnerability, right? And your ignorance, that's humility in some sense, the willingness to be a fool in, a new, in the land of strangers. That's it, the willingness to be a fool in the land of strangers. And that's an act of courage, because you also reveal your vulnerability to the world by stumbling around. But as long as you're stumbling forward, then you're going to move forward.
Now, how do you do that more concretely? You aim at an ideal, right? And you aim at an ideal that's beyond you. Now, maybe you don't aim to begin with at an idea that ideal that's so beyond you that you're crushed by its magnificence, you know? Maybe that's, that's, that's too demotivating to move you. But you could at least conceptualize yourself as the you that you are with fewer of the faults that you know of. And that's a good start. And I also think that's associated with the idea of humility. Take stock. Figure out how it is that you're not who you could be. And then move in that direction. And accept the consequences. You know, you're, you're going to get slapped a lot. But maybe with each slap, you'll straighten up a little bit. Especially if you listen, even to the people who are slapping you. Because sometimes they're the ones who can reveal for you very quickly where it is that you're weak and insufficient so that you won't have to be that way in the future. If you're reasonably articulate, like start talking and sharpen yourself up. I mean, the enemy is, is a cloud. They're a cloud of gnats. They're only courageous in groups. They're only courageous in mobs. If you stand your ground and don't apologize and articulate things properly, they'll disperse around you like they're not even there. So most of it's illusion. So don't be, be afraid, but be afraid of the right thing. And the right thing you should be afraid of is not saying what you say, because that's the same as not being. And here you are suffering in a, a way. You might as well be at the same time. At least then there's something to you. an example of the Pareto distribution. Uh, you know, there's a rule of thumb that if you run a company that 20% of your employees do 80% of the work, or that 20% of your customers are responsible for 80% of your sales, or that 20% of them are responsible for 80% of the customer service calls. Same thing. But that's not exactly the rule. The rule is worse than that. The rule is, in a given domain, the square root of the number of people operating in that domain do half the productive work. So you think, well, you have 10 employees, three of them do half the work. It's like, yeah, okay. What if you have 100 employees? Then 10 of them do half the work. What if you have 1,000 employees? Well, then it's 30. And if it's 10,000 employees, then it's 100. And this actually turns out to be a rather ironclad rule. It, it, it applies across very, very many situations. It, it applies, for example, to the mass of stars and the size of cities. So you can see how universal it is as a law. And it's, it's something like those that have more get more and those that have less get less. That's the Matthew principle, right? To those who have everything, more will be given. From those who have nothing, everything will be taken away. And the economists sometimes call that the Matthew principle. And so what, what that lays out is a world that's rife with inequality. So you know, you, you hear this idea that I think it's the 85 richest people in the world have more money than the bottom two billion. That's a Pareto distribution phenomena. And you might say, uh, to hell with capitalism for producing that. It's like, sorry, you got your diagnosis wrong. It's a natural law. It's no, no matter what society you study, you get a Pareto distribution of wealth. You get a Pareto distribution of number of records recorded. You get a Pareto distribution of number of songs written or goals scored. Like any creative product has that characteristic. And it's partly because as you start to become successful, let's say, people offer you more and more opportunities. And as you start to fail, people move away from you and you plummet. And so 
Okay, so that's rough. So what it, is, what it means is that there is always a landscape of inequality. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything about it. Although I am saying that we don't know what to do about it. That's the thing, you know, because you can modify the Pareto distribution of wealth, let's say, but, if you, but we don't know how to do it without maybe disrupting the system so completely that it collapses, which is what happened in the Soviet Union, for example, and, and in Maoist China. They were trying, at least in principle, to adjust inequality. But the cure was far worse than the disease. And the, the truth of the matter is, we actually don't know technically how much inequality there has to be to generate wealth. We can guess, and you could say, well, there should be less, and you might say, well, there should be more. If you're left-wing, you'd say less, and if, if you're right-wing, you'd say, well, we'll just let the inequality flourish. But we do know that it's inevitable, and we also know that we don't know how to regulate it. So, there is inequality. What that means is there's always going to be people around that are better at something than you are. And, the, and that's, a, that's a problem, because you can get jealous, and you can get bitter, and you can get resentful, and worse, you can get hopeless. I have this, this friend of mine, he told me something so funny. Um, he, was, he was decrying his, his lack of success in the world, and he compared himself to his roommate. And uh, he said, you know, his roommate, his college roommate was doing much better than he was. And his bloody roommate was Elon Musk. It's like, <laughs> really? Like, it's like, oh, you're not doing as well as Elon Musk. Well, it's, I mean, you can see it would take it rather personally because they were roommates and everything. It wasn't like he was doing badly, like he was doing pretty damn well. It's like, I'm not as good as Elon Musk. It's like, yeah, well, you and like seven billion other people, you know. But, but I thought it was instructive because, well, because you have to be careful who you compare yourself to. Now, you can't just not compare yourself to others, to successful people, right? Because then you don't have anything to aim at. And one of the things I learned from Jung, this was a cool thing, I'm going to make a real lateral move here. Jung thought the book of Revelation was appended to the Bible because the Christ in the Gospels was too merciful. He was too nice a guy. Now, he's an ideal, right? And Jung said, wait a second, an ideal is always a judge. That's the thing about an ideal, because you're not as good as your ideal, so your ideal is a judge. And Revelation has Christ coming back as a judge, and that was Jung's explanation at the level of the collective unconscious for the pasting of that remarkably strange and terrible book onto the end of the, of the, of the, of the Bible. So, well, anyways, my point is, is an ideal is a, you need an ideal because you have nothing to aim at, but an ideal is a judge, and you always fall short of the ideal. So how the hell can you have the benefits of having an ideal without having the crushing blow that goes along with having the judge that always regards you as insufficient. So I was trying to work that out in the chapter, and this is something I've had to work out a lot as a clinical psychologist. It's like, well, let's say you need a goal, but we don't want to let your distance from the goal crush you. So you got to set up a goal, and then you got to make the goal, break the goal down into parts so that you can move towards it and you have a fairly high likelihood of doing it. So that, that's a bit, bit of practical, I wouldn't say advice, it's, it's, because it's better than advice. It's, it's some practical knowledge about how to go about achieving an aim. Set a high aim, but differentiate it down so you know what the next step is, and then make the next step difficult enough so you have to push yourself past where you are, but, but also provide yourself with a reasonable probability of success. It's also what you do with children, right? You, you want to push them because they need to grow up and be more than they are, right? But you don't want to crush them with constant failure. So what you do is aim high and make the goal difficult but proximal. So anyways, so that's one, one, one 
one way of looking at it. But then the next thing is, you know, uh, I've, I've, I've had clients, many clients in their 30s, who are trying to, this is more true with women, I would say. A lot of women who are very high achieving and who established their career goals at 30, and then want to differentiate out, their, differentiate out their life. They want to have a husband, they want to have a family, they're trying to figure out how to do that. And one of the things I've noticed that around 30, you really have to stop comparing yourself in some ways to other people. And the reason for that is that the particularities of your life are so idiosyncratic that there isn't anyone really all that much like you, you know, because the details of your life happen to matter. And so maybe you compare yourself to some rock star or something like that, and you know, the person's rich and famous and glamorous and all that, but you know, they're alcoholic and they use too much cocaine and they've had three divorces, and it's like, how the hell do you make sense out of that? Is that someone that you should judge yourself harshly against or not? The answer is you don't know, because you don't know all the details of their lives. And who do you know that you can compare yourself to? That's easy. You. Yesterday. So here's a good goal. It's something like, well, aim high. And I, I really mean that. It's like, and we'll talk about that a little bit too. Aim high, but use as your control yourself. It's like, so your goal is to make today some tiny increment better than yesterday. And you can use better. You can define better yourself. This doesn't have to be some imposition of external morality. You know, you know where you're weak and insufficient, where you could improve. You think, okay, well, this is what I'm like yesterday. If I did this little thing, things would be just a, an increment better. And, well, th that's a great thing because you get the ball rolling and incremental improvement is unstoppable. You can actually implement it and it starts to generate Pareto distribution-like consequences. It starts to compound. And I've seen that happen in people's lives over and over. People write me all the time and tell me that they're doing that, but I've seen that happen to, in people's lives continually. They make a goal, a goal that, the goal should be, how could I conceive of my life so that if I had that life, it would clearly be worth living so I wouldn't have to be bitter, resentful, deceitful, arrogant, and vengeful? Like, that's sort of the bottom line, right? Because that's what endless failure does to you. It's not good. And, and, and that's what life without purpose and a goal does to you as well, because life is very hard. So you think, okay, well, I need to adopt a mode of being that would justify my suffering. And you can ask yourself that question. What would make this worthwhile? I quote Nietzsche, I think, in that chapter. He said, he who has a why can bear almost any how. That's a lovely line, man. I mean, it's a lovely line. And it's really worth thinking about. So you think, well, how, how do I manage all this misery and suffering and futility? It's like, well, I need to figure out what I would have to do in order to make that clearly worthwhile. And so then you have your goal, and then you think, well, I need to move towards that incrementally because I'm kind of useless and can only do so much and maybe not even that. And, but all I have to do is be a little bit better than my, my miserable self yesterday. And that'll propel you forward very rapidly. And, and you can succeed at it, which is also really lovely, because why not set yourself up for success, you know? Because otherwise you'll droop around like a number 10 lobster. And, you know, that's just not good. You get all pinchy when that happens. And it's not a good thing. There's this cat that lives across the street from us called Ginger. And Ginger's a Siamese cat. And cats really aren't domesticated, eh? technically speaking. They're still wild animals. But they kind of like people. God only knows why, but they do, you know. And so Ginger will come wandering over, and our dog looks at her, but they're friends. And, and then she'd kind of mosey over and let you pet her if she was feeling like it that day. And, you know, you have to look for those little bit of, that little bit of sparkling 
crystal in the darkness when things are bad. You have to look and see where things are still beautiful and where there's still something that's sustaining. And You know, you narrow your time frame and you be grateful for what you have and that can get you through some very dark times. And maybe even successfully if you're lucky, but even if unsuccessfully, then maybe it's only tragic and not absolute hell. And you can do that, you know, in the worst situation. You can make it only tragic and not hell. And there's a big gap between tragedy and hell, you know. There's nothing worse at a deathbed than to see the people there fighting. The death is bad enough, but you can take that, as terrible as it is, and make it into something that's absolutely unbearable. And maybe I think, and this is sort of what I closed the book with, is this idea is that if we didn't all attempt to make terrible things even worse than they are, then maybe we could tolerate the terrible things that we have to put up with in order to exist. And maybe we could make the world into a better place, you know? And it's what we should be doing and what we could be doing because we don't have anything better to do. And that's what the book is about. And that's the end of 12 Rules for Life. Thank you. change the world you live in phenomenologically, psychologically, by changing what you aim at. And the reason for that is that you can't see much of the world. You, you just, there just isn't enough of you. You have to ignore most of the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you're not paying attention to what's going on in the country next to you in any real sense. So, for example, I mean, the fact that you're localized right here and right now means there's all sorts of things that you just physically can't attend to. But mm -hmm. even in the space you're in, you're basically blind to everything that isn't serving the purpose that you're aiming at. Mm -hmm. So that's worth thinking about. If you're blind to everything that isn't serving the purpose that you're aiming at, and you can't see anything good, then one potential conclusion is that you're not aiming at the right thing. Because there's lots of things in the world that could manifest themselves to you. And I, and I really mean this physically. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a physical thing as well as a psychological thing. And so if all you see in the world is, is frustration, misery cruelty, tragedy, and malevolence, and that's crushing you, then you, you can ask yourself, well, are you so certain that you're aiming at the right thing? Now, I'm not saying that all people suffering is a consequence of the inappropriateness of their aims. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big mistake because there's an, there's an arbitrary, there's an element of life that's sort of ineradicably um, arbitrary. Mm -hmm. No, then that's you mean the randomness of the universe, basically? Yeah, well, yeah. the fact that bad things happen to good people. It's, it's basically as simple as that. Or yeah. terrible things happen to good people, even. Mm -hmm. Or even that terrible things happen to bad people. There's a randomness element to it. And you don't want to get too high on your horse about that and assume that, you know, if something bad happened to you, it's because it's your fault. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's your fault. And sometimes there's something you could do to decrease the probability that that will happen again. But sometimes you're just, you know you got hit by a bus and the bus jumped the curb and that's just how it is. But having said that, <laughs> you don't want to underestimate the degree to which you can change the way 
the world manifests itself to you by changing what you're aiming at. Mm -hmm. So then the question, of course, becomes, well, what should you aim at? And the first answer to that is, we should aim at something, right? Something, that's the first rule. Aiming at something is better than not aiming at something. Mm -hmm. So I, I, write, I wrote a fair bit about that in, in 12 Rules for Life, too. Um, there's a rule in there that says, compare yourself to um, who... You were, yesterday. you were yesterday instead of who someone else is today. That's something that you can aim at. Even if you don't know what's up, you might be able to think, or what direction up is, you might be able to think, well, you know, I, I'm reasonably aware of some of my flaws, and not flaws necessarily by other people's reckoning, although that too, mm -hmm. but flaws by your own, that you've identified by your own internal sense of orientation, things about yourself that you're dissatisfied with that you know you could change. It's mm -hmm. like, well, you could start changing those like in small ways, that turns out to be way more powerful than people think. You Not only do you start to outline what your aims might be, but you also start to treat yourself like you're the sort of person who can have aims. And that's a real revelation for many people because they believe consciously or implicitly that life is something that happens to you. Mm -hmm. And fair enough, you know. There's an element sort of, of life does, that yeah. happens to you, but but it doesn't have life doesn't happen to you any more than when you're captaining a ship, the ocean takes you where it wants to go, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes the ocean takes you where it wants to go, and sometimes that's to the bottom of the ocean. But if you have a seaworthy ship and you're a decent captain, then you can make your way across the ocean, even if there's a storm. Mm -hmm. And that's a good metaphor, that sailing metaphor. It's also why I think people love sailing so much because it it has that metaphorical or metaphysical reality to it as well mm -hmm. as being something practical. Plus the promise of bounty behind the horizon probably if you start moving towards a, a particular goal. Yeah, well that's it. That's well and and it's also it's a it's a bounty that can increase as you progress towards it as well. Mm -hmm. It's like well I'd like things to be slightly better than they are today. Yeah. Okay, well then tomorrow will be a little better and then what you're aiming at is a little I wouldn't grander nobler, grander, both of those things. You've improved your position. And, mm. and that feels good in itself. And that gives you a sense of control, mm. I think. And a sense of hope. Because if you've done it once, even a bit, you think, oh, well, I did it once. I can probably do that much again. Maybe I could even do more. And maybe if I practiced hard for like 10 years, mm -hmm. I might get really good at this. And the thing is, people do get really good at it. They get amazingly good at it. And then you meet people now and then who like, They're very astute captains of very powerful and fast ships. You think, well, how do you get there? It's, well... Incrementally, probably. Incre yes, incrementally. <laughs> you start with a raft yeah. and you start building towards right. that speedboat. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. And it helps to be healthy and it helps to... It helps to not have tragedy befall you and all of those things. You need you need good fortune. You, yeah. need, you, need, you need to avoid the hurricanes to to keep the metaphor going. Although sometimes I wonder if that's... Exactly. Sometimes you need the hurricanes to become a better captain because a lot of the people that I've met that are really uh, highly focused and goal-oriented also have some past trauma uh, in their lives. That Something happened to them that, that showed them that, well, life can be a bitch. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's rough. And that sort of hardened them to do the things mm -hmm. that they need to do in order to get to their goals yeah, well, that's an a little bit better. Yeah, that's an initiation process. Well, it is really useful to know the difference between something terrible and something unfortunate. 
You know, and you need to have had a terrible experience before you can really distinguish between those two. And then you have to learn that, well, it helps you learn what you should be worried about and what you shouldn't be worried about, but it also helps you know that you're tougher than you think you are. We brought students into the college during their orientation day in the middle of the summer, and uh, we had them do their future authoring program where they lay out their vision for their friendships and their and their education and their career goals and their their the plan that they might want to implement to deal with temptations like drug and alcohol use and their use of free time uh, their productive use of free time and their and their physical and mental health and ask them to write about what their life could be like in three to five years if they were treating themselves properly and mm-hmm. and we're on a good pathway and then also to write about how terrible their lives could be if they let their bad habits and the the effect of that even they only wrote for an hour the effect of that was that they were about 35 percent more likely to stay in school have a kind of notion of something like hell Mm -hmm. um, that's very well developed in, in 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 christianity and so hell is where you end up when you lie that's one way of thinking about it in a very good way um you might think, well, is there any psychological utility in that idea? And, and the answer is, yeah. You need to, you need to know where you could end up if things went wrong, because then you're motivated by fear mm-hmm. to move forward. If you're not motivated by fear to move forward, then your fear's in front of you, stopping you. Because you might think, oh my God, I can't take the risks necessary to attain these goals. What if something goes wrong? Well, it's like, yeah. Well, then then you're frozen. But if you think, no, no, wait a second. There's risks to proceeding, but nothing compared to the risks of failing. Mm. So then the fear is behind you, pushing you forward. That's way, so you need a vision of hell. It's like, okay, what's your own, what's your personal vision of hell? You let your life fall apart because of your own stupidity and your own blindness. It's like you're the worst place you could be in five years. Well, that's what we ask people to write about. That There's works. There's nothing like consulting your existential terror, you know, and you think, well, um, well, you know, I'd rather go out and party tonight. I should be working on this. I'd rather go out and party. It's like, well, why not? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Arithmetic helps, too. In which sense? Well, this is something I've done with big groups of students um, and my clients as well. It's like, okay, I ask students in particular between the ages of, say, 18 and 20. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, how much time do you waste in a day? Is it an hour? And people say no. Is it like four hours? No. 10? No. It's usually about six. I can get a group of 200 students to agree that they're just wasting six hours a day. No, And by their own definition of wasting, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay. So then we do some we do some mathematics with that. We've got the six. That's fine. Six hours a day. Okay. So that's 40 hours a week. All right. So then I think, well, what's your time worth? And they think, well, minimum wage. Because, you know, most of the students, if they went out and worked, they'd only get minimum wage. But that's not right because... That's a discounted version. Mm-hmm. Their time is worth way more than that if they're working on something useful because it's an investment. So it's perfectly reasonable to assume that if you're a reasonably bright student, your time is worth $25 an hour, something like that, because of its potential for future payoff. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's $1,000 a week. Right. So it's $4,000 a month. It's $50,000 a year. Mm-hmm. In four years, it's $200,000. So that's, that's what wasting your day is costing you. It's like, let's make no mistake about it. You're going to be $200,000 poorer in four years because you're wasting your time. Is that, is that really what you want to do? Mm-hmm. You, you, you're rich enough. 
so that you're willing to forego that $200,000. Well, no one's ever sat them down and said, look, put an estimate out of the value of your time. Figure out how much of it you're wasting, mm -hmm. and then ask yourself if you really think that that's a good idea. To stand up straight with your shoulders back is to open yourself up to the world. You're not in, a def you're not in the defensive crouch of a prey animal, technically speaking. And that is the circuitry that's governing posture. It's prey versus predator, something like that. And, and it, to stand up like that is to expose your, yourself to the world, but in a bring it on sort of manner. Not, not precisely combative, but let's say courageous. And your posture announces that. And it doesn't just announce that to other people. It announces that to yourself. And it can start, it can be one of those things that can start a virtuous cycle occurring, which is partly why it's taught in the military. You get these guys that come in, they're all slumped over. They don't know how to stand up. They're looking at their feet. Their necks are bent. Like, even if they're good-looking men, they don't look good because they're all crunched over. You see people like this on the street all the time. They could be perfectly attractive, except they're completely huddled in. You know, they need to stand up and stretch themselves out. And then they can breathe, too. And that's a competent stance. But one of the things that the, the critics of the modern West don't understand about hierarchies is that, first of all, they're everywhere. They're, they're inevitable. If you're going to have a distinction of value between things, you have a hierarchy. And if you, you don't want to get rid of the distinction of values between things because then you don't have anything to do. That's foolish. It's, you, you can't live that way. So I say, well, the hierarchies are based on power. It's like, no, they're not. They're based on competence. And there isn't anything more powerful than competence. But power isn't tyranny. It's not brutality. It's not threat. It might be the hint of all those things. You know, because I don't think you can be fully competent without being able to hint at those things. But hierarchies in the West are fundamentally based on competence. It doesn't mean they're not flawed, because we miss the mark lots. And there's lots of reasons why perfectly competent people don't attain the position that they deserve and that they should have for their benefit and everyone else's. The, the hierarchies are tainted by corruption, but fundamentally they're, fundamentally they're based on competence. So like if a lobster gets defeated in a fight, then he's statistically more likely to lose the next fight than you would guess from a tally of his previous victories. So that's the first thing. If you lose, you increase your risk of further loss. But if you win, you increase your risk of future gains. That's, that's a very important principle. It's a crucially important principle. It governs life. But yeah, if you take a lobster and he gets all defeated and he's off pouting and won't fight anymore because he's, you know, having a bad day and you inject him with serotonin, essentially give him antidepressants, it's the same thing, then he'll straighten up and he'll go out and have another scrap. It's like, and I read that, oh, I don't know, it's probably at least 10 years ago when I was reading about, well, the, the neurophysiology of these neurochemical systems. That's why I got onto it. It just it was another thing that just blew me away. I thought, really, you're kidding. That circuit is that old? It's like it's that old? Seri you know, that's way before there were trees, eh? Yeah. That's how long ago that is. And so hierarchy is a patriarchal construction. H how about no? How about that's wrong? It's seriously wrong. Right, so one of the things I've I've suggested to my viewers, this is the men in particular, but not just the men, um, you should be the most reliable person at your father's funeral. That's a good goal, man. That's a good goal because everyone's broken in a situation like that. 
and you adding to that brokenness and misery. I mean, you're going to be grieving, like no doubt about it, and and no kidding. But there is a time to step forward with some character, you know. And it's the same thing. You're going to be at someone's deathbed. You're going to be quibbling with your siblings while you're doing that, while your parents dying. It's like it's bad enough that they're dying. That's tragedy, right? But you can turn that into hell, no problem. You just get a bunch of people with no character around a deathbed, and it's like, well, it's bad enough, but that turns it into something like hell, and that happens in people's lives all the time. It's like character is everything. So, and that's why the wise people of our past tradition insisted upon that. They say, well, don't lie. Well, why not? Well, it destroys your character. Well, so what? Well, then you turn suffering into hell. Is that what you want? Maybe. You know, because people will want that. But I would say, walk away from people like that, right? I think we could we could think about that also in terms of of the conversation about meaning that we started to have. It's like if you win all the time, that's meaningless because well, and you think why? Because you want to win. It's like yeah, fair enough. So why would winning all the time become meaningless? It's because your theory of winning isn't sophisticated enough. Because here's how you win: you play the game to win, but while you're playing, you play in a way so that you get better at the game, right? Because you're going to play a bunch of games. Well, it's even more than that. You play the game to win, but you play it so that you get better at the game. Okay, fine, that makes sense. So you want to push yourself, right? Because that's how you get better, and so you need competition to push yourself. So you need to have the risk of loss, because otherwise you won't do it. But here's an even better way of thinking about it. You play the game so that you don't only get better at that game, but you get better at the entire set of possible games, and that's what you do when you're a good sport. It's like, well, so how do you do that? Well, partly you you find the proper level of competition, right? So you want to be pushed so that you will make the effort necessary to remove what's useless about yourself and to help foster the growth of what's useful, and. If you do that, then you get the the joy of participating in the game towards victory, but the extra joy of building yourself more and more strongly at the same time. And so, when you tell your kid, doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Your kid says, "What do you mean by that?" And you say, "I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I mean by that." Because the kid says, "I'm supposed to win, aren't I?" It's like. Well, yeah. So why does it matter how I play the game? It's like, well, then you're stumped. Even though you're right, you just don't know why. Right. But the reason is, is you want to tell you. Here's the reason. It's like we can make this very simple. Life is not a game. It's a series of games. It's actually a series of diverse games. Okay. So who's the winner of the series of diverse games? Because that's the real question, right? Not who wins a game. It's like whatever you win a game. It's like. If I hold a gun to your head and we're playing chess, I can say lose.、Yeah. It's like I win. It's like well, <laughs> that's not helpful, obviously. So you want to teach your kid. You want to help your kid learn to be the winner of the set of diverse games. Okay, so what does that winner look like? Well, here's the first clue. That's the person who keeps getting invited to play. You know, so because you win, if people invite you to play all the time. You have opportunities coming to you just nonstop, and maybe, like, let's say you have 50 opportunities, and each of them are potentially 50 percent for you and 50 percent for the other person. You think, well, that's a pretty good deal. 
And then you think, well, wait a minute, let's flip this around. So it's like 60% for the other person and 40% for me. I'm going to be like, I'm going to go, I'm going to overboard in the generosity. You think, well, then what happens? Well, then instead of having 20 opportunities at every moment, you have like 50 opportunities at every moment. And that's so, that's what you want for your kids is you want all the invisible doors around them to open. And you do that by saying, play nobly, right? Pay attention to your teammates, pass the damn puck so they get a chance, right? Even if you're the best player on the team, help the people on your team develop. Don't grandstand, right? Um, don't, if you have the opportunity to beat your opponent 20 to one, you know, in goals, it doesn't happen very often, but it can, especially when kids are playing. It's like, well, maybe after you're up seven to one, it's like, back off a bit. You don't have to humiliate your opponents. It's because it's, it's what would you say? It's uh, contemptible behavior on your part. And so and you know that because you go and watch a hockey game or something like that and you watch a kid that really knows how to play. It's like they're playing like mad to win. They're pushing themselves to be better, but they're paying attention to their damn teammates and they're, they respect their opponents. And you think, well, that's, that's a hell of a kid there. It's like, yeah, that's exactly right. That, that kid's going somewhere. What you want to do is, for your child, is that you want the best for the best in them. That's what you want. And that's what you want from people that you surround yourself with. Now, they'll hold you to a high standard if that's the case, right? Because whenever you degenerate in any of the multiple ways that you're likely to degenerate, they're going to, like, whack you on the back of the head and say, you know, clue the hell in. You know, you're, you're demeaning yourself. You're less than you could be. And there, there's real judgment in that, and it's harsh. You know, but with friends, it's the same thing. You want friends, they're not friends if they're not these people. You want friends who, when something good happens to you, they're, that's good for you, right? They're happy about that. They're not like all bitter and resentful underground and like saying horrible things behind your back and telling you how they did something that was better and trying to drag you down. It's like, that's not helpful. And then when something bad happens to you and you go to them and you say, look, this terrible thing happened to me, First of all, they don't try to top it with some like horrible thing that happened to them because they don't have the patience to listen. And second, they're not secretly gloating about the fact that catastrophe finally befell you. It's like they're actually hurt by it. And th that chapter is an injunction. is like, take a look at the people that are around you. And if they're not on the side of what's good for you, then walk away because well, first of all, that's best for them, too. If you put up with that, all you're doing is enabling it. It's like, well, it's okay that you mistreat me in a way that's harmful to me and everyone else. It's like, actually, no, that is not okay. It's not, in, it's not the least bit okay. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to help someone when they're down. That's a whole different issue.